Welcome to Recurrent Events One, and with me is my esteemed colleague, Professor Wesley Shantz. Well, hello, Professor Alex Schmid. Good to be here. It's good to be here with you. It's uh, well met, as I often tell my students, uh, uh, is the response to welcome. So welcome and well met. I don't think most people know that, but well, nope. now, now you do if you're listening. And, Again, more and more listeners and more and more segments we seem to be offering here. And so I guess since I gave that new title, Recurrent Events, and it is a Friday now uh, in the evening on the West Coast, so pretty much the end of time for, for we U.S. folk, um, <laughs> continental U.S. folk. Um, well, Wes, you know, I think this will surprise the listeners, and maybe they can weigh in on this, but this was not my idea. This is yours. And uh, I, I'd like to sort of know what your – I'd like to pick your mind about what – what does that title mean? What is it we're going to consider on it? And why did you want to do this? Yeah, I, I thought of the title uh, just as a play on the current events uh, title. And the idea being that news is what's happening now, but also what has happened before. It's recurrent in that way. And it's something that sort of bears out the truth of the saying that if we don't understand history, then we're doomed to repeat it. Um, that just seems to be true. Uh, and so that's part of the idea is that we look at the news not as it's happening so much as looking at it um, as history already in the making and trying to get a more historical perspective on it. And so the things we'll discuss here won't be, you know, breaking stories as much as there'll be things that have happened over the course of the week, you know, try to do this weekly or every other week or something like that. And looking at them from a different perspective, you know, uh, an outsider perspective, uh, uh, historical or psychological or something like that, you know, and by doing so, hopefully offer a little bit of context that might make the news less scary or a little more comprehensible. And uh, certainly it will help me, I hope, um, be a little more informed, at least. You know, it's good to know something about what's going on, uh, but also do so in a way that's sort of fits in with these larger projects that we're working on um, in, in education reform and in uh, just educating ourselves as, as we discuss poetry and science and all, all sorts of things. The, well, the other aspect yeah, yeah. I did want to, I meant to emphasize was to be using this as a way to kind of keep track of what some of the major figures that we've been modeling ourselves on are up to, uh, because the intellectuals and movers and shakers uh, that do their podcasts and do their, you know, uh, online projects of various kinds uh, there's always so much going on that especially you know if you're working as a teacher or say it's kind of hard to keep up with everything sometimes so that, that was another aspect of it as well yeah and I just I so and yeah I would say that what we are explicitly saying is we are interested in keeping up with people like you know, maybe Jocko Willink, Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, maybe Dave Rubin, any of those major intellectual dark web figures have been great inspirations to us and uh, frankly led us to many, uh, you know, we read their bibliographies, we check up on what it is they say, and then often Wes and I will read those books and those articles and then present them here. So they've actually been food for great thought. Um, but I wanted to ask you whether what you thought we were doing 
which was interesting and perhaps different is that one criticism of the news and that which is happening now is what I take to be the news, so we don't need to call it that anymore, um, uh, is that, uh, that it's always political. It comes from either a conservative or a liberal perspective, and uh, both biases are considered so tilted or so uh, stilted or, or at this point that um, neither can bear any relation to the truth. And mm. so rather than attempting to come from a political perspective, and there will be some that claim that this is impossible, but they can just keep listening and then make that decision rather than do it out of hand, um, if they want to be scientific, that is, um, which maybe they don't. <laughs> <laughs> is that what we're going to offer is more literary analysis of how things are unfolding within the world, a more narrative, uh, uh, showed like sort of the narrative underpinnings of the actions that are happening and give maybe a mythological uh, 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 antecedent or a historical and or uh, historical antecedent to what's happening and maybe even suggest different takes on the narrative on what is happening too, which is of course generally what those uh, of the right or the left political spheres do. They, they just assume a different starting point and end point from the narrative, and so it looks totally different, temperamentally. It's, so it turns out from the work of Jonathan Hyde and, uh, again, Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I, I definitely am not, a, I'm not particularly interested in politics in general. Right. I am interested in how much people get interested in politics, if yes. that makes sense. Uh, like as a as a topic as a kind of uh, horse race aspect and that's why you know for this week I thought we should probably look at like the election that just happened the election that's you know quote-unquote coming up because it's already you know people are already starting to talk about the next presidential election and so just like what's that about um, where where do you um, follow the news like have, have you read much about the election does it does it impact you at all? Did you vote? I would be curious to know. Like, and and also like, is this stuff, is this stuff that is talked about in the workplace, or like, where do people talk about this stuff? Because it seems like listening to the the media, um, it's so it's so important, right? It's so crucial to know all this. But like, I don't know. In my daily life, I don't really hear much about it. I've got to say, and that might just be because of my you know working in various different schools and not like seeing the same people all the time but but anyway yeah that's a lot of stuff to throw out there but what was your impression of the election uh did you vote in it do you talk about it where did you hear about it well that's a that's an interesting question on several fronts and i know there's several subcomponents to that question uh a uh well let me let me lead in the right order i didn't follow super closely um because i've been personally fairly disgusted with um, the journalistic political relationship and just how people have been reporting on the news for the last couple of years. And frankly speaking, the democratic response to the Trump presidency. Um, I, was, I was a firm Democrat at the time when that happened. It was a shock to me, I was very unhappy. But it does strike me that even Vladimir Putin has gotten it correct that what the Democrats need to do if they want to continue winning, I know they did well in this most recent midterm and they they portrayed it in diversity standards 100 new women in the house and our first two ever uh muslim representatives too and i think our first ever african-american lieutenant governor and I, those seem to be fine things great things though whether those are the appropriate measure of who is right in office or not i would i would say is an open question from a more libertarian perspective 
Um, but um, I've been so disgusted with just the fact that they just blame Russia. They seem to be blaming this person, that person, and then complaining and then trying to nitpick this person. I, just over-focusing on the major flaws of this person I don't want to know anything about, really. Um, uh, and that all they really, and I don't want to simplify the solution, but I think that one thing that they could have done that would make me more interested in reading about them would be try to reacquire the, uh, the working class and to pivot to that political position. And I'm not trying to uh, give, this is obviously very amateur political commentary, but uh, the reason I'm saying it is, is because it's just, it's been sort of like a sob fest, culturally speaking too, even in the cultural works I read, New York Review of Books and the London Review of Books, there's so much that's political that's, that's just, I, I would say, sort of like how Dante says with the relationship between the church and the state after the donation of Constantine um, in the Middle Ages, is that it's become corrupt, that culture is now conflated with sort of liberal politics, and that it's made me not trust the sources of culture in the same way that some people are not trusting the sources of journalism at, at, at this time because they're saying they're openly biased and therefore, you know, not, not honest, not as honest as they need to be. And it's made me, and I think a lot of people are potentially like this because this is how these podcast people have come uh, into our attention is I've turned to what I feel like is more substantial media, um, like listening to people in lectures that are put up by Yale Open Courses or by Stanford on iTunes or by Jordan Peterson's lectures on personality and its transformations, which are very helpful, and uh, Maps of Meaning, you know, it's psychology courses from Toronto and Harvard. And uh, I, I started listening to what I consider more meaningful sort of conversations about how things are now and how things always have been rather than just following the current tide of politics. And so that's made me put stray away from the traditional political process, which has also led to me not following local politics very much, which has also led to me not voting in the recent election, even though we had places to vote on our campus. But my reasoning was, and you can tell me whether you think this is, holds any water, is that I am using my voice. I speak publicly with you and I teach publicly. I, if I have something to say, I'll say it. So I'm not giving up my voice when I don't make a vote. I express it every day. That makes sense to me. And I feel conflicted about voting as well. Um, one, one, you know, factoid that's out there is how low the voting rate is uh, yes. in this country it's like it hovers around 50% or something like in a good year, maybe. <laughs> so like half of people vote. And so I guess that that holds true in our conversation too, because I did vote, even though I'm not real educated about the different ballot measures and local candidates and, and whatnot. Um, I just sort of like sat down and looked up everything on the government webpage that it said, you know, here's like little bios of all the candidates and, and looked at, what else was online like stuff in the local paper about them and, and just like made my decision very very you know offhandly kind of like I didn't give it a lot of care but I did vote because I, I think it's like kind of a, a citizenly duty almost like it's not a pleasant thing it's it's 
not something I, like I said, I'm not very interested in the outcome. I don't actually know who won most of these things. Um, I have heard that like the ballot measure to fund schools and libraries passed, which obviously I'm in favor of. I think that's good. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's like, I find it very interesting um, how, how passionate people get about national politics and generally how little they know or care about their local politics, which arguably influences them much more immediately. Right. Um, and over which they could have much more influence actually if they like attended city council meetings or whatever, you know, like wrote a letter to their, their ward representative if they live in a big city or something. I don't, I don't know much about it, but that's the impression I get. Um, I find it really interesting, yeah, that you mentioned you, you listen to more substantive conversations, things that go into, uh, that, that spend more time, you know, actually conversing about um, uh, issues. And I've, I've done something similar. I don't listen to many podcasts, actually, uh, but I do read in the Atlantic Monthly, like the online version, that's, it's free and their articles are like in-depth and seem very well-researched and careful. And they tend to have various kind of perspectives. There'll be more uh, conservative commentators on there as well as more liberal or progressive. And they all, you know, write compelling arguments. Like whenever I read something conservative, I'm like, wow, that's like pretty convincing. And then I'll go and I'll read something kind of liberal and I'll be like, well, that's also pretty convincing. I just, I just don't know. You know, and I just, I feel like that's, well, you know, if they have a bias and they're sort of clear about it, I find that to be actually kind of refreshingly honest. Yes. Um, but just to like recognize that is also to say, in turn, I, I have a harder time making up my own mind about a, a lot of issues, you know, because I can see, in many cases, I can see both sides, A, and then B, you know, I'm not immediately impacted either. Like, I don't feel like I have a lot at stake in a lot of these decisions, uh, at least immediately. And so I can sort of just go about my day and think about them, but not, I don't get that sort of passionate involvement that a lot of people have. What, what do you make of that? Where does that come from? Well, I have several responses to several parts of what you said. And uh, apparently this is going to be a pretty interesting segment, uh, which is funny because I do always have butterflies before doing this sort of thing. Will we have anything to say? We always have too much. Well, the first question is, what do you think civic virtue is? Because I certainly do think it's a thing. Because when I did not vote, I did feel it. I did feel bad about it. I do feel bad about it. And probably now that we're doing this segment and I am a teacher, I will go exercise that right because I like your process. And I'd say not to make an excuse that had I more friends around here that were like you, I'm surely I would imitate that process. And perhaps if somebody is very interested in uh, uh, getting people to vote rather than sort of constantly making screeds and harping on Facebook, which can sometimes drive people away, which is against your purpose if you actually want them to go vote and not just moralize them, um, is just go do it. And you know, maybe spend a little bit of time researching. You don't need to talk about it a lot, but it will come up in the fact that you have been doing it when you talk to people, right? They'll be like, what have you been up to? And you're like, oh, well, you know, I was just kind of looking at this and this because I'm going to go vote on Tuesday. Are you going? And, you know, somebody might get self-conscious about that because they, like me, have done no research. And they're like, oh, no, uh, not really. And, you know, maybe you can bring up a couple of things you learned. And I think that's a perfectly uh, polite way to um, remind somebody of what is happening so that if they feel a sense of civic duty, they, uh, they can act on it. 
Um, but um, that was the first thing that I was wondering. You were also asking about uh, why people get so passionate about politics. Well, uh, something about you, um, even before that, I'm mentioning the biases of authors. Every author comes from a, a particular perspective. And what we find most interesting in an author is them sharing their experience, articulating that which actually has happened to them and they, they have subjectively felt or saw, seen or, uh, or, or thought or, or thought through, right. Um, and so it's always limited, but defining those limits can sometimes be very helpful, um, which is something I think you and I are learning uh, uh, as we become sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, teachers of the world, um, but you know, or commenters on the world, whatever. You're always good with the names. Um, in any case, um, what's so interesting about starting to read people from both sides because I've, I, I grew sick with both sides and now like what, what uh, cerebral people are doing who, who believe that they are coming from a right or left side and are being honest about it is um, I've learned so much from a con the conservative perspective having come from such a limited left-leaning perspective uh, through my university formative years. I literally knew none of the conservative arguments and some of them are very strong. Like for example, when I recently went through myself and you can disagree with this, but I do think it's a strong argument. Uh, the post office posted, uh, I think a $3.6 billion deficit this last year. And so of course the libertarian comes on and says, then, then dismantle it because the postmaster chief uh, or the postmaster general came out and said, we can't make money. We just can't compete. And so if I were to look at that from a left perspective, I might think, oh my goodness, how many jobs will be lost? This is terrible. Who will get their mail? And, you know, uh, sort of like how um, Peterson and Haidt suggest that um, those who are liberal in temperament have a higher neurotic tendency. They're slightly higher in sensitivity to negative emotion. So they would be the ones who would worry the most about losing something. Whereas those from a conservative mentality are more conscientious and emotionally stable. And so it strikes me that they would not worry as much and so might see this as an opportunity. If a social service like the post office, which, you know, you can decide how good you think that is, but everybody knows in the air that it's not a place you want to go. And the expression going postal exists for good reason. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and it's not super fast or reliable. Though it, it, you know, it is a service and therefore good. But that said, if it were to, because it's failing as a business, go out of business, that would open up the space to someone like Amazon, some competent um, uh, private industry sector that would then do the job of the post office, but much better with a much higher satisfaction guarantee. And I can almost guarantee that they would they would pay you back for anything that they lost at some point. There would be a returns process or an unhappy process that you would actually have recourse to, unlike with the post office. And it would get cheaper because there would be competition uh, um, levied in it. So that's the sort of argument that I would have had zero time for before I started reading conservatives. But now, and I don't know what you think of it, and that's, it, I don't think it's the most substantial thing to have to talk about, but I, I think. That is very strong. Yeah, I think it. I think it kind of ties in with your question about civic duty or civic virtue, and it might be uh, less to me. It's it's less about the service that the post office provides, 
at this point, which as you say, other companies already can do that better, probably cheaper, more efficiently. It's, it's more about the idea that there are services mm. that the government provides rather than someone else. And that those services by being from the government, from the state have something different about them. Um, that you're sort of like a servant of the people when you work in those jobs. Yes. Um, which I, f I think that's very valuable, like not monetarily, of course, because as you say, it's hemorrhaging money. Uh, it's the opposite of valuable, but, but sort of from a, an, an ethical perspective, like that's a person that you should respect and possibly, um, you know, they, they don't do enough to deserve that respect, but you know, the, the school teacher, the post office worker, uh, the policeman, the fireman, like those are, those are the jobs that traditionally have sort of held communities together, I think. And if you yeah. start to peel those apart, then there's lots of consequences to that. And so, you know, what we're doing with school and making more charter schools available is I'm on the one hand, very, very much in support of that because it gives people better options and saves money, I think, um, and all that good stuff. But but on the other hand, I'm conflicted because if you get rid of neighborhood schools and kids can sort of just go anywhere that they're able to get to, to do whatever they've been able to hear about, then you are looking at maybe undermining a big, uh, a big support of the civic, you know, feeling what's left of it anyway. So, and, and the military is another huge example, right? It's a huge expense, the military. Um, it's obviously, um, had many historical failings uh, since the world wars and maybe even including those depending on how radical you want to get. But, but it's also like a huge um, kind of mobilizing force um, for feeling like you're a part of something bigger than yourself, which people need. And um, it's, it gives people a lot of purpose. If they don't have a lot of other options, it can be a good one. So yeah, I think there's lots of examples and and I guess that's that's basically what I would mean by civic duty or, or civic virtue. It's a it's kind of old-fashioned idea, but one that is really fundamental to the American experiment, I guess. Yeah. Uh, again, I have a lot to say based on that. I thought that was very interesting, and I, I was I found myself agreeing from the get-go about the idea of like a fireman or a policeman or a teacher or a male person being a servant of the sort of community or the country. And that that affording them a special trust. But then I thought of it a little more. And I mean, I don't think that that is untrue. But I also think about um, industry and uh, private standards. We would give more trust to someone who was trying to make money based on our service and was bending over backwards to do what we wanted. In fact, I think that is the source of greatest trust. When you have a mutual obligation between people that leads to your mutual benefit. Um, and that, and that I don't think that you can get rid of just the civic, the civic uh, functions totally. And I think that the argument would be around, especially if somebody were, uh, you know, conservative uh, versus or not versus, but with a liberal, I think the conversation would be what is necessary and what is not necessary. What are the necessary services? And because I think, some of the criticisms of like, say, getting rid of the Department of Education is not to get rid of 
public teachers, not, not to get rid of funding structures for schools, not to get rid of any of the important things, but to get rid of sort of a poorly put together organization that does not do something as well as a private organization would do with the exact same goal in mind. And I think that's what, um, that's what sort of gets people hung up at times. They think that if something is a private corporation, that it doesn't have the consumer's interests in mind, perhaps because of certain industries like, you know, the tobacco and the alcohol ones. Um, and, and, but that said, you know, uh, well, I, let's just put that on a branch for now because I think we could talk about that as well. But um, that I think it is precisely in uh, a private organization's interest to provide a better product to you than the person next to them. And so that that ensures the highest ethical standard from that way of looking at things. Um, and, so, and so I think that certain functions and you know we could dig into that at some point of the government could be better done by uh, trusted private organizations, and I don't mean trusted as in like a sort of a, a, a what is the word I'm looking at? a nepotistic way, but um, like with a proven track record. Um, and well, so 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 uh, I don't know if you want to comment on that too. I I still haven't addressed why people get so rah rah and so into politics, and I do have something to say on that. No, yeah, go for it. Because I, I was just thinking like, wait, did he answer that part or not? Because no, I, I think that's, yeah, something we should come back to. Um, and particularly within the, the scheme of education, because I think that both of us have seen and thought a lot about that. But um, let's make this our, our last topic for today uh, then. Okay, yeah. well, somebody I've listened to quite a bit on this, um, besides Jordan B. Peterson, and is um, uh, Jonathan Haidt. And he's done some work. Um, what was the name of uh, his... his work that I always forget. Um, righteous Minds? Righteous Minds, yeah. yeah. Right. I, the coddling of the American mind, I think, is kind of like to the righteous mind what 12 Rules for Life is to Maps of Meaning. Not quite as big a <laughs> difference in rigor, but, um, you know, definitely a popular book because he's becoming more popular, and that makes sense. But um, something he writes about in both those books, Height, Coddling, and The Righteous Mind, is labeling in order to create in-group bias. So when you label somebody as other than you are, you sort of activate this neural circuitry. And I've talked about this on consilience conversations with a professional neuroscientist, Dr. Matthew Roos. Um, you basically uh, tap into your hardwired rat circuitry that identifies somebody as other or uh, threat. Um, and so, if you, and they've actually done experiments on this with um, people being grouped into groups based on uh, uh, catching heads or tails on a, on a quarter. So you can actually identify a bias against another group and favor economically those within your own in-group um, based on a game of chance on whether you're in the heads group or the tails group. So you're actually hardwired to do that sort of thing. Um, and since you don't do it with your nose like a rat or a dog does, you do it with information. Is, and, and, which of course makes sense because you know you think about all the different ideologies and how they represent themselves uh, you know physically with certain tattoo or scarification or certain clothing that they wear or certain things that they eat that identify them as who they are and not as who you are um, and so what happens when you label somebody as different from you are is you you set them in a category of potential threat 
And so, you know, I think you see some of this in the words are violence arguments. Now, the very existence of somebody with an anomalous idea makes them identified as a threat, which is technically how your brain does perceive them. But the thing about being a human is that you occupy so many different in and out groups that to reduce your relationship with another person just to just one like that is ridiculous and impossible to facilitate. Because if you can become threatened by my very presence because I exist in an out group other than your in group, A, that doesn't mean that your in group is just and mine is not. B, if I am ever in a group that you, de you define or is defined or is a majority as opposed to a minority to you, that is de facto a threat. That's actually how democracy works. It is ruled by the stronger contingent. Uh, if anybody forgot that, by the way, the majority is who wins. The Vox Populi, Vox Dei. And so the majority is who served. You know, and that, uh, which president was it that, was it Reagan or was it Jimmy Carter? It's, uh, or, or another one that said, you know, the silent majority rules. Um, I forget which one. And any, I don't remember. I think that might be Nixon, actually. Maybe I'm even not sure. Nixon. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's a, sort of an unfortunate choice, but <laughs> just because of popular <laughs> opinion, not because I know anything about him, which is so funny because that's so often what we talk about, right? Getting away from just popular opinion and learning to think about something, which is precisely what you have to do. When somebody identifies themselves as, like, say, Democrat and you're a Republican or vice versa, your immediate animal instinct is going to be to not want to listen to them and to eat and to fight them in some way. And as a human, as a social animal, you do that through words. You'll identify yourself as a different group from them, and then you will both sort of engage in the same archetypal behavioral uh, conflict display. Oh, well, you know, that's so dumb, or you know, this is so dumb. You'll devolve as quickly as you are inarticulate, basically. But <laughs> maybe a more useful thing to do is to actually ask somebody questions and push them to see what the limit of their thought is on something. And you might get them to actually start thinking. And then if you imitate that and start thinking, then you're actually part of a more powerful in-group, which is the group of Americans who use their free speech in open assembly in order to figure out what's going on. And I think that's the most important thing, and that's what we're trying to do here in the marketplace. Yeah, that's, that is among the most important things, I would say, as well. And it's certainly the way that I try to approach um, people who I disagree with is, is to figure out what, what, they, what leads their thinking, you know, where, where, they, where they come to that from. Um, because often there is a, a story there, which is worth hearing and trying to um, put yourself in their shoes and sort of see it from their perspective. I totally agree with that. And I, uh, that's what I, I think we can definitely do by having um, guests on the show or, you know, have people send in ideas and thoughts and um, give us a little bit more fodder, you know, for in future weeks. Uh, but I'll certainly also keep keep an eye on the, uh, the few new sources that I do look at um, and, and try to bring some interesting stuff uh, to to do our little news roundup here for current and, events. Yeah. Um, thanks and, for making this time. Yeah, thank you. And just to add this to the uh, to the to the listeners, just because there is a certain black hole about saying you're not going to do news in the same way. News can be cultural events too, like something I'm interested in talking about next Friday because it is next Friday is Black Friday and what Black Friday means and how it's changed with the online world. Um, 
And, yeah. you know, if an interesting sporting event is happening, because I think that is also one of our complaints with the quote unquote news. It's just news about politics and very specific contingents of it. There's so much more happening that we want to see and think about that's amazing. And that's, I think, what we're trying to make time for. It's like, okay, you want to give away the space of all the great things and the incredible things happening in the world? Well, somebody's got to talk about it. <laughs> so, you know, we might as well. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll be that out group, I guess. That's yeah. our goal. Yeah. Nice. Well, I thought this was excellent. Uh, looking forward to this recurring many times, sir. Yes. I, I, hope, I hope we can catch some time uh, and be like sort of awake after Thanksgiving to, to, to discuss this. Yes, uh, hopefully the listeners will, um, hopefully their ears will be as lazy as our tongues on that yeah. day. <laughs> yeah. All right, till then. Till then.